Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make Christ our true and great reward today. That the first and last name on our lips would be Jesus. We pray that your spirit would speak to us through your word today, wherever we are, wherever you find us today, you would have a word for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One area in which I believe the church has frequently dropped the ball is in how singles are treated among us. Ask anyone who has been single for any prolonged period of time within the church, and they'll have stories of feeling like a second-class citizen or as a not-quite-arrived believer. Part of this is natural because of the true teaching like we've studied over the last two months, how marriage is such a good thing. Holy, blessed by God, a gracious gift. It's easy to start thinking then that not being married must be the opposite. A bad thing, unholy, unblessed, a gift withheld, an inferior state of affairs. The more that we rightly honor marriage, the more easily we can wrongly relegate singleness. In recent years, one prominent Christian teacher who many of you really respect labeled singleness as a devastating attack or assault on marriage, that it's a disaster. But the consequences of these ways of thinking are actually what's devastating and a disaster. Christians looking down on each other based on their life stage or relationship status. People feeling condemned or deficient over something that's not wrong in the least. Singles feeling pressured to pursue marriage in unhealthy ways or unhealthy timing, under the looming threat of living life lonely, unhappy, or unfulfilled. But is singleness really awful? Or is it actually a blessing from God to be affirmed or celebrated? Today we're continuing our series we've entitled Home Life. And finally moving on to our second topic. And we want, through this series, to show how the gospel impacts our lives at home, especially in our relationships. Now, obviously, if you're single and you think, I have no relationships at home, <laughs> this is today is going to directly apply to you. But even if we're not single, I think there are critical things that we need to know and hear from God's word. As Sam Alberry writes, as a single person, I have a stake in the health of the marriages in my church family. 
and those who are married have a stake in the health of my singleness. It's part of what belonging to one another involves. And when we think of the proportion of our local church, that's us too, that might be single, it makes it all the more urgent that we're all on the same page, talking about the same thing, and heading in the same direction. Now, speaking of Sam Alberry, the guy who gave us that quote, you'll likely be hearing his name a lot over the next several weeks. He wrote a book that I, has been hugely impactful for me personally called Seven Myths About Singleness. And it's a book that I wish I could have read when I was single. But even as I read it a few years back, my main thought was not that all the singles need to hear what he has to say, but that everyone needs to hear this. And so that's why if you're in a small group, you'll be discussing this. You already started this last week, but you'll be discussing this over the next month and, and a bit. On Sundays, I'll try my best not to overquote him. But I apologize in advance when I do. Now, Sam Alberry's wisdom is only valuable in as much as it lines up with God's wisdom. So today, we aren't just seeking to hear from a book, but from the book of God's Word. And we can begin together by opening up to Matthew chapter 22. So you can grab a Bible. If you don't have one of your own, you can find one in the seats in front of you. Matthew 22, the page number is there on the screen. Last week's and this week's sermon titles are taken directly from something that Alberry says, that if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. Now, if you're unclear on what the gospel is, think of it as the, the grand history-shaping story of God, our creator, pursuing and saving sinful people through what his son, Jesus Christ, did. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't. He died the death we all deserve to die. And he rose again to new life, offering us new life, restored life with God forever. And as we saw last week, marriage points us to the shape of this great eternal gospel. But this week, we'll see that singles also have an important role to play in this drama. Singles have the honor, yes, the honor, to show that the gospel is sufficient. How so? Well, let me offer you a few different ways that I believe this proves true and plays out. First, the gospel is sufficient for singles as it provides balance. The gospel is seen to be sufficient as it provides balance for singles and really for everyone. I'll show you this in three different areas, I hope, from God's word. In relationships, in sexuality, and in the church. So first, in relationships, singleness can help keep marriage and family from becoming idolatrous. We looked at Matthew 22 last week as Jesus discussed marriage. And the people tried to trap him, saying, In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven men, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Verse 29, Jesus speaks up, and Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. 
For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So remember, marriage is a temporary, limited relationship meant for this life. But what does every fairy tale traditionally preach to us about true love and marriage? And they lived happily ever after. In other words, the relationship is ultimate. It fulfills us. It satisfies us. It makes us happy from that point on forever. But notice again what Jesus says in verse 30. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So our ultimate eternal state is going to be single. Or you could say married to Christ, but single in relation to each other. But what does this mean for us still in this life? Well, for one, life doesn't begin when you get married. Don't believe that lie. Neither does life end when a spouse dies or a marriage tragically ends. Think about it. 100% of married people spend a good chunk of their life as single people. At current rates, 80% of singles in the church will be married at some point in their lives. And at least 50% of currently married people will be single again one day. These are both acceptable, often temporary, non-superior seasons of life in singleness and marriage. And this should help us de-idolize marriage. It can't ultimately fulfill us like we think it could. The truth is, there are many joys and many challenges in marriage. Happiness and heartache. And there are also many joys and challenges in singleness. Happiness and heartache. Sam Alberry wisely warns us all, the temptation for many who are single is to compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage. And the temptation for some married people is to compare the downs of marriage with the ups of singleness, which is equally dangerous. The grass will often seem greener on the other side. Yes, it can be hard to be single. But have you talked to any married people lately? Even if some have a wonderful marriage, very few would tell you that it's easy. No, your life will not be sorted, your problems will not be solved if or when you get married. And this goes beyond marriage to all family relationships that singles can often feel like they're missing out on. Think of how socially critical having a family has been in different eras, as it was in Jesus' day. Having children and heirs was the key to significance and long-term security in their culture. And so Christians who remained single powerfully testified that significance and security is not found in family but in God. 
Their hope was secure in him alone. So do you see how the gospel can provide some balance here in our relationships? You, if you make a spouse or children or the dream of a spouse or children into a God, they'll inevitably disappoint you. There's only one true God who can satisfy. And single believers can testify that this God is God enough for them. His grace is sufficient for whatever we walk through. The gospel provides better balance in our relationships. It does the same in sexuality. It keeps our sexuality from becoming ultimate or defining us. Let's be upfront. Part of what it means to be a single Christian is to be sexually abstinent. But in our culture... Our culture tells us that without sex, you can't experience true humanity. You can't be the real you. And so, if you suppress or even just restrain your sexuality, you do harm to yourself. But here's the thing. If sexual restraint makes singleness not good, then Jesus wasn't good. That's the logic. Because we believe Jesus came as the perfect man, the, the archetype of humanity, and he was single for his whole earthly life. And he was sexually celibate. I'm not saying that you and I can be perfect like Jesus was. I'm just saying Jesus was the perfect man, which means that living out our authentic sexuality is extremely overrated. If, if the author and perfecter of our faith could live a full life as a single, chaste adult, then don't buy the lie that you need sex in order to be fully human or fully alive. If we believe this, we imply that Jesus was less than human, that he was subhuman. Christian, all of our lives are defined by a single man who is totally sufficient in and of himself. We are not defined by our relationships or our marital status or our sexual preference or our sexual activity or anything else. Like it says in Galatians 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's who defines us. But Pastor Matt, being sexually chaste or celibate today is so difficult. No doubt, no doubt. If you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you, and if you've got God's people around you, there's plenty of help, and there's an abundance of hope. It is possible, doable. And as long as you are called to be single, 
Yes, you are called to sexual holiness as your body doesn't belong to you anymore. God has claimed it as his own. This is a glorious thing. But this does not mean that you're missing out on life. Like, don't develop FOMO over this. You have an infinitely greater identity and destiny now than sex can ever offer you. And your commitment to not compromise helps remind us all, oh yeah, sex isn't life. We can live without it. None of us truly need sex or porn or a lover or release or whatever. We need Jesus. End of list. And thus, the gospel helps bring balance to our sexuality. Finally, I think the gospel provides balance through singleness in the church. Turn over in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, we'll look at verses 3 to 5. This is right as Paul starts describing how the gospel should transform our lives. And he says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So, if you're married, don't think that you've graduated to some higher level of maturity or faith. Likewise, singles, don't look down on those who might, you think, give in and get married. We all need to think soberly and modestly and humbly about ourselves. And why? Because we all legitimately need each other. Look at verse 4. For in one body we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So God has given us all diverse life experiences or situations, different giftings and wisdom. Like my Christian life will be unhealthy and imbalanced without every other part of the body of Christ. And thus, you think, well, singles can benefit greatly from being included in the family life of other believers. And vice versa, couples and families also need things that singles in their lives can provide. Their perspectives, their experiences, their friendship, their wisdom. And the way that, that the gospel brings us all together intentionally in the church is a beautiful thing. When we were up on the church retreat a couple weeks ago, I'd say that I saw this all over the place. As a whole herd of single believers mingled, this wasn't christianmingle.com, <laughs> but they mingled not just with each other, but with children and holding babies and with young parents and empty nesters and grandparents. And if you ask anyone who was there, I am certain they'd say their lives were enriched by that. Because 
That's the way the body of Christ is meant to work together. Our church, with a multitude of different life stages and ages and, and backgrounds that God has brought together here, has this potential in spades to show off the beauty of the gospel every week as we gather on Sundays in our small groups. So I encourage you to be intentional about who you include in your circle, in your life, no matter who you are. This leads right into the second major point I want to give you today. Because a very common assumption we make is that if someone doesn't get married, it will mean a permanent lack of family. As you grow older, sorry, you're on your own. You know what the gospel says to that? A Dwight Schrute style. False. See, the gospel is sufficient for singles as it provides family. The gospel provides family. The gospel is sufficient for singles as it provides family for them and through them. I'm not going to spend long on this point today as I plan to expand it into an entire sermon. But for now, you can flip over with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. In this passage, Jesus totally redefines what we should mean by family. I'll be starting very end of the chapter, verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, Jesus was not being disrespectful or rude here. He was more just making a teaching point to his listeners. He wasn't putting down his physical family. He was elevating everyone else. Verse 49. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, don't miss the point he was making because it's actually rather astonishing. Jesus counts any disciples of his as his own immediate family members. We are now, we're in Christ, we are now directly related to the Messiah, Savior, King of Kings of all, King of Kings himself. Like once that sinks in, how could any relationship matter more than that? Through the gospel, we are welcomed into the great family of God. And we are then meant to relate to each other as fellow family members, brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does this mean for single Christians? It means you always have a family. You always, and this is not just some cliche. Like what we have in Christ surpasses anything we have in a natural family. And this is such a great promise, especially for those who actually lose their regular family 
on earth. Over in Mark 10, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So yes, in eternity, of course, but also in this time and this age as well. And we can see in God's word how God builds his family in various ways, often through us. He uses us to do this. So if you're single, maybe you feel a bit lonely. Are you seeing God's family as your family? Are you seeking to to do life with them as much as you possibly can. And if you're married or in a family, are you considerate to involve others in your family life, others who are more often than you doing life on their own? Now, they don't need you to feel sorry for them. They need you to welcome and include them. Christopher Yuan suggests that what Christian singles get more than anything else in the church is pity. Singles don't need pity. They need love. Remember that. Okay? They need a family, as do you. And that's why God has placed us in each other's lives. Now, some of you singles likely feel, that's all fine and dandy, Pastor Matt but I'd still prefer to be married. I wish I was, and I long for that. And I'd respond to you, that's okay. That's okay. I I hope our messages on marriage made this clear, that marriage is a a worthy desire. And it's a, a blessing from God that you can hope and pray for. But also... I don't want you to believe that your life's value or purpose increases if you do get married. In fact, the Bible's very clear that God has given some incredible purposes to single folks. And this ultimately comes through the gospel. So here's the point I'll give you. That the gospel is sufficient for singles as it provides purpose. The gospel is sufficient as it provides clear purposes for singles in their stage of life. I'll again suggest three things. Three purposes that God imbues singleness with. First, the gospel gives the purpose to devote ourselves to freely serve. To freely serve the Lord and others. You can turn over with me to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, the quintessential passage on singleness in the Bible. And this comes right after passages on sexual immorality and marriage that we recently studied. I'll start today in verse 6. So 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, that is, unmarried. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind 
and one of another. So that's where singleness is identified as a gift. Now that verse has sparked plenty of confusion and you can say joking ridicule over the years. It's a gift nobody wants. Can I return the gift? What's the return policy? Can I re-gift it to someone I don't like? <laughs> but be careful because we should never mock the giver of the gift. What we think we want is not always what's best for us. But he knows what is. He is sovereign, omniscient, all-knowing, and only gives good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. I remember when I was single, being perplexed by this so-called gift of singleness. I wondered, like, do I have the gift of singleness? How would I know? How do I figure that out? So let's demystify this a bit. Because Paul wasn't saying that a select class of people are given a special gift or calling that empowers them to be single for their whole lives. Not saying that. Neither is he saying that they get some elusive state of peace that lifelong singles feel about being on their own. It's actually much simpler than that. He was saying that if you're single, you have the gift of singleness. And if you're married, you have the gift of marriage. It's totally normal for many people to have different gifts during different seasons of life. But both are still gifts in the biblical sense of the word. See, in Scripture, gifts are always presented as an ability given us in order to serve others. So, I did have the gift of singleness at one point. Now I have the gift of marriage. Whatever my circumstances, those are God's gracious gift to me. In verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So, and yes, we know that some people will have the gift of singleness for their whole lives. That doesn't mean it's easy. It does mean it's always an opportunity. It's an opportunity. It's a, a freedom to serve like Christ has served us. Further down in the chapter, Paul says this, starting in verse 26. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Excuse me. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. 
The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Did you catch that? To secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Again, Paul is not saying it's wrong to marry. He's just promoting the benefits of singleness. Because we all need to see the benefits of whatever station of life we're in. And the chief benefit, Paul says, of being single is a freedom a freedom of time, purpose, of attention, of devotion. Say there are fewer distractions. And this is important because, as verse 29 says, the time is short. In other words, Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom, and he'll return at any time, which should both temper, or temper both our present joys and our sorrows. Like we can and should enjoy the things of this life, but not be engrossed by them. We can and should be glad, but not overly glad. Sad, but not overly sad. Because a future is coming that will far exceed everything now. That's his logic here. Which implies, by the way, we shouldn't be overly euphoric about getting married... And we shouldn't be overly disheartened if we do not get married. To put this idea another way, since we're on the very threshold of eternity, we should resist being too tightly attached to our current affections and loves. After all, your current relationships are not the main storyline of your life. Jesus is. Now, there's all kinds of questions you could ask about the passage we just read. Pastor Kenny's going to take us deeper next week into this. But if you, by nature of being single, aren't as attached to, to current domestic responsibilities, you have an advantage when it comes to serving the Lord. You are freer than me. Paul isn't contrasting what's right and wrong here, but rather what's complex and not as complex, what's complicated and not as complicated. When he says in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things. That's not sinful worldly things, just the present day things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Like life gets much more complicated with a family. Singles, if one of your friends asked you after church to, to help them out for a few hours, you could just do it. Right? You might have to shuffle around some study plans or get subway for lunch or, or maybe just stay up a little bit later at night. 
but the hindrances to you serving your brother or sister are very few. If I was asked, I have to think, okay, how do I feed the kids? <laughs> Who takes our vehicle? Right, should my wife come along with me? Does she want to? Do my kids want to come with me? Like, do some kids need a nap. How are they getting that? Am I asking too much from my family if I take this opportunity? Now, listen, it doesn't mean I can't serve. Not at all. It just means it's more complicated. A few weeks ago, we went to a wedding where my wife was singing and I was officiating. We were serving. And if you were single going to the same wedding, you just got dressed up and walked out the front door. For us, it meant arranging childcare months in advance. It meant making sure all the kids were dressed and fed and out the door, which is far easier said than done. It meant watching all of our plans almost fall apart last minute when one kid started puking. It meant imposing ourselves on some very gracious family members who helped us out anyway. It meant, it meant a lot of what Paul calls anxieties here. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining about being a husband and father. I love that. I'm just trying to give you the, the perspective that Paul is trying to give you, that the grass is not all greener on the other side, and that there is plenty to appreciate about being exactly where the Lord has you right now. Now, Paul outright assumes that single Christians will be anxious about the things of the Lord here. So it's a good thing to consider. Are you? That's a legitimately high challenge. Alberry admits that this is a battle for many of us, speaking of single people. It is easy to channel our flexibility and energies into merely pleasing ourselves rather than God. A significant temptation for many singles, especially if we live on our own, is to become self-centered. I can easily become anxious about the things of me. It is easy to do what I want, how I want, when I want. We need to remind ourselves daily that our singleness is not just for us, but for the Lord. It's not for our concerns, but for His. Like I said, we're going to be looking at this more deeply next week. But my point for today is, are you thankful for the purpose that the Lord has given you in your singleness? Are you after that? Like the gospel changes our hearts and lives and motives. It makes us want to serve others. Being single gives you an almost unparalleled freedom and flexibility to do so. So I hope and I pray that you will maximize the season you have for God's glory. And honestly, I am so encouraged by the many single adults in our church, younger and older, who are really leaning into the things of the Lord and serving others so selflessly. And you are an example to us all. And I see Jesus in you. Speaking of which, another purpose for singleness 
is to display the goodness of the gospel. Isn't that one of the purposes of marriage? Well, yes, it is. Singleness shares this purpose. This is, singles just accomplish it in a different way. Whereas married couples display the goodness of the gospel through their sacrificial love for each other, reenacting the way that Christ pursued, served, and sanctifies his bride, singles display the goodness of the gospel through their visible belief that Jesus is everything they need. They are willing to forego some blessings in this life in order to point to him. Now, challengingly, the main way this is done is through self-denial and contentment in that. It is through denying ourselves earthly gratification that the world tells us is our right. For example, with sex. As Glenn Harrison explains, single Christians who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex inside the marriage bond. Denying yourself can be just as potent a picture of a thing's goodness as helping yourself to it. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but when I sometimes deny myself ice cream, it's not because it's bad. I deny myself because it's so good, and yet there's something even better for me than it. Better health, less, less weight, hopefully a longer life. Even if those things are hard to see in the immediate moment. Let me ask you this. Is God still good to you even when you're single? course he is. Is the gospel still true even if your longings go unfulfilled in this lifetime? Absolutely. I love how Paige Benton Brown has described this. She says, God will not be less good to me when I am single because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. My identity is not found in my marital status, but in my redemptive status. I am one of the haves, not one of the have-nots. You hear what she's saying? Like the question at the end of the day is, is God good enough for you? Will you trust his goodness? And if and when you do, you defy the world who tells you you are incomplete without a lover. No, you're incomplete without a savior. But once you have him, you're whole. And if you don't have Jesus yet here today, then I, yes, I firmly believe you need him in your life. You need to admit that your sin has separated you from God in his life. You need to, to believe that Jesus died and rose in your place in order to bring you back. 
And as you turn from your sin and you turn to the Lord, he promises to save you and transform you. No romantic relationship nor determined self-dependence will ever do for you what Jesus can. So I encourage you to, to bring your mess to him today. He'll know what to do with it. For those who have already done this, I want to offer one more purpose the gospel gives us. We all have this purpose, but singles can do this in a special way. The gospel provides purpose through singleness to direct our focus to eternity. To direct our focus to eternity. One last passage for us to read. You can turn over to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, this comes right after Jesus says, so they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then he forbids most cases of divorce as he's talking to his disciples. And then verse 10, the disciples said to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. So surprisingly, Jesus agrees with his disciples. Yep, marriage is a super serious covenant. Not everyone should enter into it. But then notice what he says, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this Receive it. Eunuchs are, well, eunuchs. These are sexually celibate people. And Jesus distinguishes three different kinds. Eunuchs by birth, eunuchs by force, and eunuchs by choice. Literal or not. Jesus is saying that some people willingly give up the blessings of marriage or family in order to best further the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus could have said, just said that some people don't marry in order to serve God. But he chose this unpleasant, even horrific picture of castration to show that this could indeed be a costly thing, a painful deprivation. And listen, this goes for all of us. Jesus' followers need to realize that we may end up giving up many good things now in order to put Christ and his gospel and his kingdom absolutely first in our lives. I believe that if you are single and Christian, as long as you are in that state, this is your calling. To, you are called to make the choice to remain celibate outside of marriage. And why? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It very well might not be a permanent state for you, like it would be for a literal eunuch. But for now, you are called, like Moses is described in Hebrews, to resist enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, and to consider the reproach of Christ as greater wealth than the world can offer as you look to your eternal reward.
Brother, sister, fix your eyes on your reward. Focus on what's to come. You might feel this is not a fun calling. Well, I wouldn't assume that. It may well not be. Yet it is vitally important. Like the world needs to see people who are focused on eternity. And it will be wildly rewarding. In glory, I guarantee you won't regret a single day when you denied yourself in order to display the supreme treasure of Christ. As Alberry concludes, like Jesus... We can live in a way that anticipates what is to come. Singleness now is a way of saying that this future reality is so certain and so good that we can embrace it now. It is a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy that these things are not ultimate and that in Christ we possess what is. The presence of singles who find their fullest meaning and satisfaction in Christ is a visible physical testimony to the fact that the end of all our longing comes in Jesus. And that's what it really all boils down to, isn't it? What makes the gospel sufficient? The gospel is sufficient for singles as it provides Jesus. The gospel is sufficient for singles and for everyone as it provides us with Jesus. I don't mean this to be cheap comfort at all. How could it be? Right, that, that the Lord of all, the Son of God, the Messiah King, would give Himself to us makes whatever we go without in this life for his sake tiny and trivial in compare. Just ask your heart right now. Will Christ alone be worth it in the end? Father, open the eyes of our hearts to see the glories of your Son. Help us not overlook this or belittle this or neglect this incredible blessing that you have poured out on us. Thank you for Jesus. May each one of our hearts be captivated by his beauty today above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.